I'll be reading uh, from Galatians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. No, I'm good. Thank you. Good morning. How about those testimonies and baptisms? Fuel for worship. It's just amazing to see lives transformed by Christ. My name is Ronnie Rents. Uh, I serve as a lay elder here if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet. And I am so excited uh, to bring the word of God for you this morning, to preach uh, for you this morning. I hope uh, this impacts you as much as it has impacted me in my study. I will never forget that feeling I got the first time that I drove my own car by myself. There was, was no impressive van. God must have known I was going to be a family, van, family man because it was a van that seated seven. Uh, I drove this old, beat-up, white Ford Aerostar. It had this fun safety feature. Uh, you'd be driving down the road, and the sliding door would just pop open at any moment. Uh, so if you sat in the back seat, you really had to make sure you had your seatbelt on or, you know, like fun ejection scenario there. Um, and so when this would happen, I would get out and I had a hammer and a block of wood and I would actually have to bend the metal back so that the door wouldn't open. And then we could continue uh, with our ride. So um, it was not the most impressive van, but it didn't matter how nice it was or how unsafe it was. That feeling of being on your own. The freedom I felt driving in that car for the first time, it was sheer exhilaration. I could finally do what I wanted. I could go where I wanted, whenever I wanted. Nothing was stopping me. This is freedom, or so I thought. This morning, we are going to talk a lot about freedom. We've already referenced it several times, this freedom that we have in Christ. And while I believe 
The pursuit and desire for freedom is all around us. Most of the time, we don't know what true freedom is or where it is found. My hope today is to point us to true, life-giving, life-changing, chain-breaking freedom in the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our culture presents so many paths to freedom, so many lesser freedoms we can rejoice in and find identity in. Help us this morning to see where true freedom is found. Help us to look at our lives and, and analyze and see if we are truly living in gospel freedom, God. Do a work this morning through the power of your word and your spirit. In your name we pray, amen. In our journey through the book of Galatians, we've seen that the churches of Galatia were being deceived. Paul is in disbelief. He, he's astonished that they've already turned away from the gospel that he preached. This pains him. He wants the best for them. He wants their freedom in Christ. He set them up for success. But once he was gone, like addicts relapsing, they've gone to other gospels. The bane of Paul's life is the work of false teachers. If Paul had a dartboard hanging in his tent, it probably would have had the faces of false teachers over the bullseye. In this case, these false teachers are known as the Judaizers. These are false Christians that were teaching that in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, you had to follow Jewish law and be circumcised. Their slogan was Acts 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved just by grace and through faith in Christ alone. You've got to earn it a little bit. You've got to follow the Mosaic law as well. And to discredit Paul's message, they challenged his authority. They would undermine him by saying, you don't need to pay attention to Paul's writing. He's a different, he's, he's not like the Jerusalem apostles. He's, he's not a real apostle. He preaches a different gospel. These are two different gospels. And these false teachings would be devastating to the church, to, to new believers with weak consciences and weak convictions, causing them to second-guess Paul and to follow after these imposters. And Paul wants to deliver these Christians from the bondage of this false gospel and refute these Judaizers. Please join me by turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Today we are going to see in our passage, uh, as the point of our sermon, freedom threatened in verses 1 through 5 and freedom entrusted in verses 6 through 10. So with freedom threatened, starting in verse 1, we see after 14 years, Paul goes up to Jerusalem. This 14 years, many believe, is in reference to the time since his conversion. So after 14 years, after coming to Christianity, he is going up to Jerusalem, and he is taking Barnabas and Titus along with him. Of his two companions, Barnabas... Was, wouldn't have stuck out. He was, he was Jewish, but Titus was a Greek or Gentile. He was not Jewish. It was very daring to take Titus along with him. You're taking a Greek into the Jerusalem church headquarters. This could be seen as an act of provocation. On a smaller scale, uh, this might be comparable to some avid FSU fans getting together to head to a Florida State football game, and one of their friends shows up decked out in orange and blue uh, gator gear while wearing multiple Miami gold chains around his, their neck. 
for that friend that may not go well. I'm sorry, I tried to find a USF, University of Tampa correlation, but like nursing programs competing just didn't have the same vitriol. Um, not as fierce as a rivalry, but go Bulls and Spartans. So, um, Jews traditionally viewed Gentiles with hostility. In their eyes, they were morally corrupt. They were unclean. They had no regard for the things of God. They could have viewed Paul as intentionally stirring up drama by intentionally bringing Titus along. Paul was bringing in someone who was claiming to be a Christian but was not following the custom. Circumcision was a distinguishing mark of a Jew, and there would be pressure on Paul to to circumcise Titus. Paul is being bold here, but Titus is being bold here as well. He was kind of a guinea pig for the sake of the gospel. I could just see Titus with sweat on his brow asking Paul, hey, buddy, are you sure about this? You know, I wasn't looking to have surgery today. Titus would serve as a test case for the gospel, going before the apostles to verify that what mattered was his, was his faith in Christ and not adherence to the Jewish law. So why did Paul go on this journey? What motivated it? In verse 2, we see this reason. Not because he was summoned by a council, not to answer to the growing criticism of his critics, but because God told him to. I went up because of a revelation. We don't know exactly what the revelation was, but what is important is that Paul was led by God. God, not his fears or by the compulsion of other men. And he sets the gospel before others, some in private, some in public, that he had been preaching to the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And upon hearing this, it can be easy to think that Paul feared that what he was doing was wrong. Oh no, maybe I've messed up. Maybe I've been preaching a wrong gospel all these years. This is not the case. Paul doesn't think that he's been running in vain. He, did, he didn't have his doubts about the gospel. This was the gospel that changed his life. This was the gospel that changed the life of those in his ministry. The same life-giving message he had been preaching for 14 years. And so while Paul wasn't doubting the gospel he was preaching, this was still a very critical situation for Paul. In some ways, Paul's ministry was at stake and possibly the future of the church. The unity of the gospel and the unity of the churches depended on the accepting of Titus and the recognition of Paul's gospel. Paul did not doubt the authenticity of the gospel he preached, but he was concerned about the acceptance of it. What if the apostles had been compromised? What would their response be? What if they tried to add something to his gospel, like circumcision? Paul had been laboring, striving, giving his life to this gospel, and and to think now it might be called into question. Imagine how high the stakes were. Church history weighs in the balance. It could reject his gospel message and potentially destroy the credibility of his ministry in the eyes of others. But after bringing forth the gospel, he preached by the grace of God, we see in verse 3, that no one insisted upon Titus being circumcised. Jew and Gentile are accepted by God on the same terms. Faith in Jesus And Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile, but more importantly, he was a converted Christian. This is what we'll see later in Galatians 3. 
28, as we unpack uh, what it means to be free in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. As a true believer, Titus was living proof that circumcision and the Mosaic regulations were not prerequisites for salvation. There is no such thing as a second-class Christian. We are all saved in the same glorious way, by grace alone, through faith alone. There's no difference in our standing before God, and there should be no difference in our standing before each other as well. This affirmation was a rejection of the Judaizers' doctrine. And while Titus being received as a Christian without being circumcised was amazing news, the the threats from the false teachers were just now getting started to ramp up. In verse 4, we read, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. These false teachers crashed this event. They wormed their way into the meeting. Paul, in describing this, is intentionally using words of espionage. They operated secretly. They slipped in. They spied out. Listen to how Paul puts it. He says that these false brothers came to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. This is how starkly Paul views this. To add anything to the gospel is to bring someone into slavery. Is this hyperbole? Is this exaggeration on Paul's part? These are some pretty polarizing terms. Slavery? How can Paul state that the gospel, if it's changed even by one thing, it brings others into slavery? It's because the truth of the gospel is one and unchanging. Whether you have been a Christian for 40 years or you are a new believer, this gospel message is the daily foundation of our lives as Christians. If it is changed, if it is altered, if it is twisted, it fails to be the gospel. The same gospel message then is, this, is what it is now. We may think that we are autonomous and we answer to no one but God. But God is our perfect, holy, and just loving creator. He designed us. He knit us together so that we would live lives for his glory and his purpose and have right relationship with him. Everything that we have been given is a gift from him. But every human born in their natural state is a slave to sin. We're born breaking God's law. We don't know any other way. You don't have to teach us how to be selfish. It's, it's hardwired into our DNA. And as children, as teenagers, as college students, as adults, in our flawed thinking, we think that our way is the best way and that most freedom comes in life when we serve self, becoming our own functional God, doing as we please, worshiping at the altar of our own self-gratification and happiness, as if the God who created us does not exist. We decide on our own what freedom is in living life by these self-created terms. But deciding what our freedom is, as appealing as that may seem, it has only served to imprison us. It turns out that pursuing our own visions of freedom 
we seem to only dig ourselves deeper into bondage. As much as we may seek to find freedom or earn freedom in our own power, we can't. Freedom is bought. It had to be purchased for us. God took on flesh. He lived in ultimate freedom, perfectly righteous without sin, and laid down his life as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of man. He was so free that even death couldn't hold him in the grave. And this redemption through the sacrifice of Christ, if we turn from our own own ways and put our faith in him and trust in Jesus for salvation, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are made alive in Christ. We see this transformation clearly in Romans 6. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once pretended your presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see, everybody is a slave to something. We're either slaves of sin leading to death or slaves of righteousness leading to life. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, this is a begr- we serve him begrudgingly as forced labor. When a person is born again, they are given a freedom like nothing else. They are freed from their sin. They're standing before God. The God of this universe is now covered in the righteousness of Christ. It is difficult to truly unpack the magnificence, the preciousness of this gospel message and its life-changing implications. If you are in Christ, you are free. Christian, You are free from finding your validation in what others think of you because the God of the universe has set his affections upon you and sees in you the righteousness of Christ. You are free from your past mistakes because they have been washed clean. You are freed from finding your validation in social standing because God doesn't care about our status and he loves the lowly. You are free from fear because the one who holds the future holds you in his hands. You are free to forgive when you are wrong because you have been forgiven. You are free to love and to be loved with no condition, freed from your insecurities, freed to be yourself in community, to confess sin openly because you were loved when you were at your worst. You are free from seeking out comfort because you have been given the comforter. You are free to give sacrificially of your time your resources, free to take gospel risks, free to go in service of the gospel because you have already been given all things in abundance in Christ. In the face of prejudice, discrimination, and segregation that was still very much alive a hundred years after slavery had been abolished, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. closed his speech at the Civil Rights March in 1963 with these words. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Dr. King had taken these words from an old Negro spiritual. And while this song was commonly sung as a celebration of freedom from slavery, the song's original meaning was about freedom from sin in Jesus Christ. 
The slaves who sang these songs may have had their freedoms unjustly taken from them on this earth, but they were free in Christ. They may have had chains around their ankles, but they were free. They knew where true freedom was found, and they could sing with joy in the face of injustice. Some of us have been freed, but we live in a way that displays to this world that we are scared to leave our prison. We want to run back to our sin, to find our identity and comfort in lesser things. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is only bondage. Either we don't know what we truly have, or we're disillusioned by what we could have. Brothers and sisters, if you were put in chains tomorrow and sold as a slave at market, if you are in Christ, you would be freer than your masters. Every Christian here was bought with a price before the foundation of the world. He sought you out for his possessions so that you can walk in freedom. Seize the freedom that you have been given. Picking back up in our text, in verse 5, we see Paul's response to these threats of the gospel. He did not give even a little bit. To them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment. Why didn't he yield? It wasn't because he wanted to be right. He did not yield so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As we see Paul's example, I can't help but wonder, what is our response to a false gospel? More, or maybe even more important, what false gospels are we tempted to yield to? On one side, we may be tempted to add something to the gospel, like the Judaizers. Probably not circumcision, uh, but maybe our good works. You know, Jesus plus my good works gets me saved. Jesus plus my efforts and my reputation uh, gets me right with God. If some of us had it our way, in our flesh, many times we would probably be more comfortable in accomplishing our own salvation than receiving it by grace. We are all recovering legalists. One commentator had a definition of legalism that I thought was very helpful. Legalism is working in your own power, according to your own rules, ultimately to earn God's favor. Adding, uh, just adding something to the gospel, it would be kind of like you, you think about someone who wins an Olympic gold medal, right? First place, awesome. You're so excited. I just want a gold medal, y'all. I mean, you got a conversation at every party you go to for the rest of your life, right? Here's my gold medal. I think I would have to wear it under my shirt wherever I went. But um, it'd be like taking that gold medal and in your desire to commemorate it, in your desire to just show it off, you go and you get it bronzed. That's, what's, that's what it's like when we add something to the gospel. Another way we may be tempted to yield to a false gospel is a path of compromise for the sake of good relationships. The church is under a great weight today to compromise its beliefs, to compromise its message. Paul did not yield for a second. He didn't stop and ponder their warped gospel. I know that this is an area that can be difficult for me at times. In an effort to include and to bring others in, there's a, the temptation can be to soften the gospel message. 
And we should all desire for peaceful relationships, but this can never be at the cost of the gospel. The truth of the gospel does not permit compromise. And our gospel is not a true gospel if it is not complete and pure. Another question for us to think on as we consider the implications of Paul's response is do we consider others in our knowledge of the gospel? Isn't that such a great motivation by Paul? Paul doesn't want to win an argument or to prove a point. He wants the gospel to be preserved for others. It's like a soldier putting his life on the line to secure freedoms for those back home. Your theological knowledge and living daily in gospel truths is not just for your own benefit, but also for the sake of others. We have been blessed with this freedom, and we should live in this freedom, but also fight to preserve it and uphold it for others as well. How can we be shy with the freedom we have towards others? How could we not commend this gospel to everyone we love? How can we be so tight-fisted with such good news? May God forgive us for not generously sharing the freedom we have for the sake of others. This gospel freedom that Paul has been laboring for has been threatened by these false Christians and praise the Lord, he did not give in. He did not yield. Next, we're going to see how this gospel freedom is entrusted to Paul. It can be easy to read verse 6 and think that Paul is being maybe a little disrespectful or dismissive to the apostles. Some in church history have even called Paul prideful uh, in, in this statement, in this verse, verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. Yeah, it does seem like a little snooty, doesn't it? Um, but despite the way it sounds, Paul is not being arrogant or dismissive. He later on calls the apostles pillars, the foundation of this belief. And so Paul is not prideful about his status as an apostle. He, he's not seeking to bring others down. In fact, what does Paul famously claim he is in comparison to the rest of the apostles? 1 Corinthians 15.9, For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. No, what he's doing, these words are carefully chosen by Paul to answer his critics. The Judaizers are putting this emphasis on status. The Jerusalem apostles were the real apostles. Paul was a wannabe apostle. Don't listen to him. But Paul makes sure that the Galatians know that their status is not what he is concerned about. Because someone's status, no matter how great or mighty it may be, does not change God's truth. Paul is not addressing the real worth of the apostles, but avoiding the traps of adversaries. Had he yielded to them, he would have amassed more charges against them. Paul is being very precise to not give them a foothold. I'm so helped here by Paul's lack of the fear of man. He is far more concerned about the integrity of the gospel message for the sake of others than he is about what others might think of him or perceive him. Even bringing Titus along shows where his confidence lies. Paul questions human credentials 
when they stand in the way of the gospel. They did not contradict or add to his message in verse 7. On the contrary, they recognized his gospel as it was. They saw that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jewish people, because God worked in them both. Normally, when an idea is shared this way, when an idea is brought forth, here's my gospel, I'm I'm laying this out for you uh, before a council, The the proposal is heard, it's kind of deliberated and discussed, and then maybe a, a better idea or uh, something to consider is brought forth, something superior, a rebuttal uh, by the apostles. But in response to Paul, they produced nothing. They had no debates. They embraced his doctrine. They, they saw and affirmed what God was already doing, what God had already done in Paul's life. Isn't it a beautiful thing that the Spirit at work in ways that the Spirit is at work in ways that we cannot even comprehend? They could have said, well, he's not a part of our group or our denomination. Uh, but instead, they recognized the grace and calling that he had been given. The word entrust may not be a word we use every day, but it is putting something into someone's care or protection. God worked through Peter and Paul. He worked through them, and he is working through us. We are entrusted with the gospel. Who might you be entrusted with the gospel for? Maybe your siblings, your classmates, college students. You live in an environment that is constantly selling you false ideas of where freedom is found. How might God use you to proclaim the freedom you have been given? Professionals in the workplace, do you find your coworkers influencing you or yourself being more of an influence for Christ? Fathers, do you see that the responsibility of leading your family as those who have been entrusted with to nurture in the gospel, to raise them in the love of Jesus? Mothers, you have been entrusted with your children to preserve the gospel for future generations. We can never assume the gospel. Sadly, we see all throughout history, all it takes is one generation for the gospel to be lost. Turns out freedom is difficult to gain and it is an easy thing to lose. Our lives have been changed and we have the joy of being entrusted with this freedom. This is outside the church as well as inside the church. Members of CLC, we've all been entrusted with the gospel to this covenant community. Who here at CLC might need gospel encouragement? might need a brother or sister or spiritual mother or father in Christ to speak into their life, to remind them of these truths. And this is why we've chosen as a church, when, when we have new members come into foundations class or, or in membership conversations from the beginning, we lead with the gospel. It is essential that we preserve what we have been entrusted with. And this is a precious and weighty responsibility that we should be just as ready as Paul was to defend it and uphold it. Paul goes on in verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
The apostles saw the grace that Paul had been given by God. In this giving of hand and fellowship, this was a symbolic gesture of their gospel partnership. We are with you, Paul. Keep up the good work. And what we have in this is such a beautiful picture of unity that is found in the gospel and our shared mission as the people of God. They have the same mind and heart that we see in 1 Corinthians 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and in the same judgment. We have brothers and sisters in different contexts, with different giftings, seeking to reach different audiences. But there are no conflicting messages because we are rooted in the same gospel. Let us be careful not to draw lines of division where God would have us be unified as partners in the gospel. And having this same mind and judgment and unity, they were already thinking the same thing. The apostles' only stipulation was, that, was something that Paul had already had in mind. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. There were believers in Judea. They labored in extreme poverty, and they were dependent on the generosity of other churches. And Paul had already had, already had supporting them in mind as he went forth on his mission. They were already on his heart. And summation, having freedom in the gospel, in these gospel truths, compels us towards others. In my experience, I've seen a stereotype or caricature of sorts and then some of the least theologically-minded Christians I know can be quick to be moved to action, to generously serve those in need, while some of my more theologically astute brothers and sisters can be more hesitant to serve in this same way. This dichotomy should never exist. The truths of God should never be devoid of the mission of God. Right thought should drive right action. And we should study the things of God richly. And as we grow in grace, we begin to be conformed more and more to his character. We are driven to love and care for those in most need. Truth rightly understood compels us to take action. And that's what Paul was eager to do. When this freedom of the gospel was threatened, praise God that Paul did not give in. Not even for a second. And praise God that although we can never earn it or deserve it, every believer has been given freedom. And we are entrusted with this freedom. May we live and proclaim this freedom all the days of our life. This morning, are you living in this freedom? 2 Corinthians 3.17 reads, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Brothers and sisters, let's embrace the freedom that we have been entrusted with. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for loving us, for saving us. I'm convinced that we, we do not even know the depths of the freedom that we have in you, Lord. Thank you for not leaving us to seek freedom out and to live in our own devices, but to be free in you, God. Help us to realize more and more of what we've been given. Help us to walk uh, in the freedom that you have called us to and help us to share uh, as we've been entrusted with this freedom to this dying, lost world, Lord.
Help us to honor you in everything that we are. Thank you that you have entrusted us with this freedom. In your name we pray. Amen.